We are in the middle of a series called Seeing to Follow, and it's taken out of Mark chapters 8 through 10, and we'll be in there for about two months, and this is our third evening together in this series. And the premise of the series is that in order for us to follow Jesus faithfully, we need to see him clearly. So that we see Jesus clearly, then we can follow him faithfully. But if our vision is blurry and distracted and and veiled, then our ability to follow him will likely be half-hearted and misguided. Now tonight we pick up in chapter 9, verse 2. And to set the context for just a moment, last week we looked at this interaction between Jesus and his disciples where for the first time Jesus said, look, my vocation as the Messiah, as the king of the kingdom is to come to suffer and to die. And the disciples were distraught, to say the least. Peter pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him and says, no way, Jesus, this is the wrong step for you. This isn't the plan. And so the disciples are in this place of disorientation and disillusionment, most likely some despair as well thrown in there because their own sense of attachment to Jesus and his victory was now called into question. And also, no no doubt, there was doubt at play in them. Maybe this really isn't the right one. Maybe we've given up our fishing jobs and joined the wrong team. And so they were in this place where a lot of these D words were defining their experience. And let me ask now you for a moment. If you're human, and I think most of you are, you know what it means to wrestle with doubt. You know what it means to wrestle with disillusionment. You know what it means to have a bit of despair about the everyday life that you lead? You know what it means to be disoriented, maybe by a phone call from your doctor last week, perhaps by a broken relationship in your life. Maybe it's a habit that you can't seem to get the better of and that always seems to get the better of you. Maybe it's some kind of uh, unfulfilled expectations about what you thought your life was supposed to be and was going to be, but it's not actually turning out to be what you thought. And so you know, and I know, what it's like to wrestle with these realities of doubt and disillusionment and despair. And maybe some of you tonight are wrestling with those things rather poignantly in your life. And if you are, I want to suggest to you that this passage in Mark 9 actually speaks directly to us in that situation as we identify them with the disciples who find themselves in that situation and are now pressing ahead and moving forward. And we see four things in this passage that we'll go through in addressing this very human reality for us of despair, disillusionment, doubt, and so on. The first thing is, what do we really need? What do we really need? If you're in that place right now in your life, there's a very strong current in our culture that says, you know what you need? You need to get smarter. You need to get wiser. You need to read more books about your issue. You need to go to the experts that understand what's really going on in your life or in this relationship or at work, and you need to figure this out and you need to fix it because you can. And now, obviously, some of those steps in and of themselves are not entirely wrong. But if that is our only approach to this this kind of situation and circumstance in our lives, then it's woefully misguided and misdirected. The call of our culture is, you need to focus on you and you need to focus on the circumstances a little bit more, the situation. Get another angle. Understand this better. And then you can figure it out and fix it. Now, a really smart guy named Blaise Pascal 
um, who was a genius, died before he turned 40. He said this about humankind that I think is quite pertinent. For after all, what is man in nature? A nothing compared to the infinite, a whole compared to the nothing, a middle point between all and nothing, infinitely remote from an understanding of the extremes. The end of things and their principles are unattainably hidden from him in impenetrable secrecy, equally incapable of seeing the nothingness from which he emerges and the infinity in which he is engulfed. We burn with the desire to find a firm footing, an ultimate lasting base on which to build a tower rising up to, infer- to infinity. But our whole foundation cracks and the earth opens up into the depth of the abyss. Let us then seek neither assurance nor stability. Our reason is always deceived by the inconstancy of appearances. Nothing can fix the finite between the two infinities which enclose and evade it. He says we're really limited. And this mainstream doctrine that if you are in a place of despair and discouragement and disillusionment, that what you really need to do is just buck it up and, and, and jump in and figure it out is actually very, very much wishful thinking in light of our position in the universe, in light of how little we actually know, in light of how small we actually are compared to the infinity that is around us. What this passage says, above all, what we see just generally, obviously the disciples, three of them at least, get taken up to the mountaintop and they see a vision of Jesus in his glory. What we need more than anything else if we find ourselves in this kind of a situation is we need to see God. We need to see Jesus the Lord and we need to see him for all that he is in his glory. The infinite one who is certain and stable and firm and secure, who sees everything. This is what we need to see. Now, in Mark's gospel, in this section in particular, the real focus on this theme of seeing to follow this series we're doing is on seeing Jesus in his suffering. It's on seeing Jesus in his vocation as the suffering son of man. And that's an incredibly important vision of Jesus for us to grasp and to get a hold of, to get our minds around, and to wrestle with. And that's what we'll do most of the time that we're in these three chapters. But obviously there are two cooperative, two um, mutually reinforcing visions of Jesus that we read about in the New Testament. There is that vision that Jesus has just given to his disciples, which has led to their disillusionment of his vocation as the suffering son of man. But there is also this vision of Jesus in his glory. The true king who bows before no one, who takes orders from no one, who holds all control over everything in the universe in his hands. And we must see that vision of Jesus, especially if we're in a place of disillusionment, despair, disorientation, and doubt. It's interesting, biblically speaking, in the, at the, in the book of Revelation, Revelation 5, we get a glimpse into the throne room in heaven. We get a glimpse into what is going on for all eternity in the throne room of God. And we see there a vision of Jesus that is these two visions paired together and held together. There is one who is the Lamb standing as though He had been slain. The victorious one. There is Jesus in all of His glory with all the marks of His suffering. There is these two visions held together. 
And what we need desperately when we come to a place like the disciples had come where it seems like the world is falling apart is we need to see the vision of Jesus high and lifted up and exalted. Now you might be out there saying, okay, sounds great, but I don't believe it. I really don't think that's going to do anything in my life. I don't think that really works. And if that's you, if that describes you, if you think this is just kind of hoopla that's sort of appealing to the emotions, I want to ask a question back to you for just a moment. And it's this, will anything else work? Will anything else work? Yeah, we can go out, we can find solutions, we can find resources, we can keep this internal turmoil and sometimes rage and anger and frustration and bitterness at bay for a while, but it will eventually come back. It will eventually come back even stronger. And I would put to you that nothing in this world that we can turn to, nothing that we can grab hold of, nothing that we can learn or understand will actually address that deep thing going on inside of us that needs to be addressed in a real and powerful and tangible way in our lives. And let me give you three observations, two of them biblically, one from a person in our congregation. One is from the story of Job. Here's Job. If ever there was a man who was in despair and disoriented and doubting, it was Job. And yet he did it righteously. And how does Job, this book, get resolution? God shows up. God shows up and says, look. Were you there when I made this world? Do you know what I know? Do you see what I see? And suddenly Job's solution is resolved. We read Revelation 1 tonight, this vision of, the, uh, of John on Patmos. When he sees Jesus in this beautiful, mystical vision of his glory reigning and and, and ruling on the throne, holding the keys to death in Hades. Now, the book of Revelation is written for churches that are in the midst of suffering and persecution. They know doubt and despair and disillusionment and disorientation. They know that there are those out there who will swallow them up and knock them down. And here's this vision that Jesus gives to his servant who then gives it to the churches. We baptized Deason this summer. Deason had come to know the Lord Jesus over the last year or two. And, and in her testimony to us at her baptism, Deason said this, I believe what I believe because of God's generosity in revealing himself to me and the strength of his love which holds me to him. I believe that everything from this point on, no matter how difficult or painful, is a mercy because God found me first. I believe that God is the essence of everything that is beautiful and that everything I have truly loved, I've loved because it reminded me of him. Deason's own testimony about the fact that when we find and see Jesus high and lifted up as the savior and the ruler, things begin to change. And as she said, whatever trouble, however difficult or painful, what comes to me is now a mercy. Seeing God Seeing Christ in his glory does change us. So if this is what we need, how do we get it? How do we see Jesus in this way? And let me say, uh, just briefly, that it's a God-given gift. Verse 2, Jesus, after six days, took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Jesus knew that his disciples were struggling. 
Jesus knew that his disciples were disoriented and confused. This vision of Jesus in his glory is a vision that comes not by our our working hard for it, not by our manufacturing it in our lives, not by our earning it in any kind of way, but it comes as a gift. It comes at the initiative of the God who loves his people so much that he sent his son to, to, to live as one of us, to die as one of us, and to rise again as one of us so that we could do these things too. Jesus takes him up to a high mountain. Now, I love the mountains. I've spent a lot of my life in the mountains, working in the mountains. Uh, climbed a lot of 14,000-foot peaks in Colorado. And there's one thing about a mountain. It gives you perspective, right? When you go up to the top, that's one of the best parts about climbing a mountain, is you can begin to see. Just last fall in the White Mountains, Chloe and I went camping at the base of Mount Monadnock, and we ended up deciding to climb it the next day. Some of you have probably climbed that mountain. It's about 62 miles from Boston. And it was a beautiful, clear day. It was December 1st. And we got to the summit, and we can see the skyline of Boston from that far away. Jesus takes his disciples up the mountain because you can see at the top of the mountain. And also because it's at the top of the mountain where a lot of people have met with God. Sinai, for two of the figures that are about to appear here. So this is a gift, this vision that we desperately need. It's a gift. But we put ourselves in the place to receive this gift. The disciples had to leave their nets and follow Jesus. They had to leave their nets and follow Jesus. John, in Revelation 1, was actually at church. I mean, he wasn't because he was by himself, but he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. He had come to a place of being with God when God then gave him the vision. So there is a gift. This is an initiative of God, but there is a part to play that we put ourselves in the place to receive that gift. Now let me address you again if you're thinking this doesn't really make any sense. You're you're saying, you know, if God wants me to see him, if God wants me to understand his glory, why doesn't he just make himself more readily apparent in my life? And I hear that objection a decent bit to the Christian faith. Let me see, say these words from John 1. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God, that is Jesus, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Do you know what that objection is like? It's like sitting around a poker game when you're not in the game and sitting next to somebody and he shows you his full hand of cards. This is what I got. And, and then he holds him back up and you say, well, wait, can I see that one card again? He's like, no, 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 you can't. You see, God has already revealed the whole card. He's revealed the whole deck. He's holding nothing back. He's let himself out completely and come to live among us to make himself known to us. And I would put back to you that if you say that objection, well, he should make himself more known, that it's, it's much more likely that instead of God hiding himself from you, that you are hiding yourself from him and running from him. When he's standing there saying, come, come, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It's a gift that God gives. Thirdly, what's the content of this vision? 
What is the content of this vision? Well, it's not knowledge per se. It's not a success formula for how to live your best life now, but it's, it's Jesus as Messiah. Jesus as King. Jesus in a foretaste, an anticipation of his future glory brought now to this place on the mountaintop. And he was transfigured before them, verse 2, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white. It's almost comical, as no one on earth could bleach them. We're running out of words to describe what's taking place, but the reality is there is no natural explanation for what's going on in this story. It's that Jesus is being infused with the glory that will one day be his, but isn't yet, because he's still on his earthly ministry with the disciples. But here, they get this foretaste of the glorified, risen, ruling, and reigning Messiah over all things. They see his glory. And they also, they see his glory, the other part of the content is they see his significance, the significance of Jesus. Now, there are two figures that show up on the mountaintop, Moses and Elijah. And the simple explanation for why they appear and begin to talk with Jesus is because both Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament, in the nation of Israel, are associated now in the first century when Jesus is doing his earthly ministry, with the future age of God's kingdom. Malachi 4, 5 and 6, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Elijah will come. Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen about Moses, or about one after him. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen Remember what they had just heard. Jesus said, the Son of Man must suffer and die. And they start thinking, whoa, this isn't what we had planned. They start doubting, Jesus, is this who you really are? Are you really the Messiah? Are you really the Christ that we've just said that you were? And now they see him in his glory. And they see Elijah and Moses, and they have ears to hear and eyes to see, and they understand that this means that this is not a failed prophet. This is not a confused and deranged prophet. Um, person who's speaking on behalf of God, but this is the king. This is the one on whom all the world will turn. The old age will pass away and the new age of life and peace and blessing and joy will come in and will be ushered in. This is who he is. And they begin to understand that clearly and they see his significance because of the fact that Elijah and Moses are there with him. He's not a fraud. He's not a lunatic. He is the one who was promised to come. And then, as if they needed more clarity, out of the cloud, the voice speaks. And what does God the Father say? This is my beloved Son. He goes with me. We're hand in hand. He comes from me. He's returning to me. Don't doubt him. In all of your doubt right now, in all of your despair, in your disillusionment, in your disorientation, how does this vision speak directly to those things? It says this, it says ultimately that it is okay. That Jesus reigns. 
that Jesus is high and exalted and lifted up and that he cares for you and that he loves you and that he belongs to you so that when fear is dragging you down, when fear is sort of eating you up on the inside, when there is anxiety over something that's coming up this week or next week and you can't seem to think about anything else, when there's insecurity over who you are, what your gifts are, um, your purpose in life, when there's, an un- when there's a threat to your health, a significant threat, and many of you in this room have experienced those, that threatens to drag you down. The reality that Jesus is king and that Jesus is glorified and that Jesus rules and reigns speaks directly to each one of those things. And it speaks a word of encouragement to you and a word of peace to your tumultuous heart and a word of security to your place of insecurity and a word of courage and boldness and and stability and solidness to the place where you are shaken at the fundamental core of your being. Because Jesus is really real. This is not smoke and mirrors. This is not just some game. He's he's really real. He's alive and he's reigning and he's present in your life right now. And that makes all the difference in the world to you, especially when you're in this place of despair and discouragement and when things aren't making sense in your life and you feel like a failure. It matters because Jesus is alive and he's at work and he's reigning and he's ruling and he's glorified and he belongs to you and you belong to him. And that is all that matters fundamentally for us. Do you see him? Do you see him now? Do you see him today? Do you see him when you walk out of this place tonight? They were on the mountaintop and they saw him. They saw him not in a veiled way, not, not, not behind some kind of screen or through clouds or smoke, but they saw him. They saw him in his glory. They saw him like John saw him on the island of Patmos. Have you seen him in that way? If you have them, what's the response? Well, what we see here is that, first of all, they were terrified. They were terrified. Verse 6, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. When we see God glorious, exalted, high, and lifted up, when we see his holiness burning with purity, when we see his power unlimited, unleashed, when we see his goodness, when we see his kindness and his mercy, pure, free, there's really no other response than to fall on our face and to have this terror evoked in us in one way or another. John, when he saw the vision of Jesus on the island of Patmos, it says he fell at his feet as though dead. The disciples were terrified. It's interesting, in Matthew's account of the same scene of the transfiguration, Jesus says to them, he reaches out and he touches them and he says, rise and have no fear. When you see the glory of the risen and reigning Christ, you will fall to your face. You'll begin to melt in his presence because he's so strong and so pure and so holy. But he will reach out and grab you and raise you up and say, do not be afraid. Because my terrifying glory and my power is not against you, but it's for you. It's working out in your life for good. Stand. And the response isn't to build tents for Moses and Elijah and Jesus, this impetuous kind of action because I just don't know what to do. But the Father gives the response. Listen 
to him. When you've seen Jesus in his glory, and he's raised you up again to be his son or his daughter, the the son or daughter of the father, his brother or sister, he says, listen to him. This is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 18.15. Listen to him. Now back to the context, disciples just heard that Jesus said, I'm going to suffer and die. And by the way, if you want to follow me, if you want to have life, if you want to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross too. This isn't just for me, it's for you too. We're going to Calvary together. There is no other way to life than the way through the cross. Listen to him. Listen to him. Surrender before Him. Fall on your feet. Fall on your face before Him. Let Him pick you up and follow Him. Follow Him with everything that you have to life. Now, none of you will do this perfectly this week, nor will I. And thanks be to God that He's gracious. As they come off the mountaintop, the disciples don't have clarity exactly on everything that's going on. They start wondering, what's the Son of Man rising from the dead all about? And they ask Jesus a question for further clarification. And I'm not going to go into that question now. But I just want to say that Jesus answers their question. Basically, he says, you know, it's right that the Son of Man is going to suffer. Elijah, who was John the Baptist, suffered too. And yes, I'm going to suffer as well. Jesus is gracious with you. Jesus is patient with you. This vision didn't literally transform the disciples' life forever. Peter denies Jesus. James and John, in just two chapters, are going to ask for a seat at his right and his left in the glory that is theirs in the kingdom. They didn't get it fully yet, but they got something. They got a foretaste. They saw something. And Jesus begins to walk them through the process. Jump into this process. Place yourself in a position to see the glory of Christ. Bow before him and let him pick you up, not just now, but let him pick you up again and again and again as he did with his disciples. So he will do with us that we might follow him on the way to life, to the cross, underneath our glorious king. He's alive, it's real, It's not fake. He loves you. Walk with him this week.